right. <clears throat> Let's give it up for these guys real quick. Thanks for, thanks for that. If you're part of the, uh, if you're part of the Fostering Hope leadership team, would you just raise your hand real quick? Just raise your hand. Yeah, and just give it up for them too for time and energy invested into what we're doing here at Vintage. All right. Uh, well, hey, we're going to dive in this morning. So if you've not been a part of Vintage or have been here, we are just, uh, this is our second to last week of our focus on our study on, on Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. And so uh, we are diving into chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 15 uh, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. I'm going to read through all these verses. We're going to go pretty quick this morning just because of time, and we have so much to cover, so I'm going to go pretty quick through this. Uh, if you don't get everything, you can text me. I'll send you all of my notes, or you can just go back and listen to the message on YouTube this week. Here we go. Chapter 3 of Titus, starting in verse 3, going through verse 15. For we ourselves, <clears throat> we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable, they're worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him or her once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. No, such a person is warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. When I sent Artemis or Titius to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See, they they lack nothing. And let people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be fruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So in the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple different conversations. The two weeks, several weeks ago, a conversation, we talk about our private lives, the private lives that we are called to live because how we live, how we live our private lives actually impacts those who are around us, not yet Christians, those we would call unbelievers, right? The idea that how you live your life as an older man, an older woman, as a younger man, a younger woman, it impacts everything that you do that impacts the people around you. And how you live your life then will impact the not yet Christian. And then last week we talked about the public life that we live, the life that we live in the public sphere, the reality being that how you live your life every day in the context of your job and how you live and how you relate and talk about our authorities and how we talk about our government and those who are in leadership, it impacts the world in which we live. And Paul comes and says, listen, I want you to be good citizens. That's the point. I want you to be good citizens. In fact, and I want you all to hear this. But basically the language of Paul here in Titus about being good citizens, it's really clear. He's saying how you live and 
in the public sphere and how people see you is the number one tool of evangelism that we could ever engage and we could ever embrace. It's not about going on some massive preaching crusade to all these places. No, the primary way that we are to and the primary way Paul was leading them to lead the not yet Christian to Jesus was by being a good citizen and how they lived Christ-like in the public sphere. And as we read through that, that should be challenging for us in the way that we relate in the public sphere, how we relate to people, how we communicate, and how we talk, recognizing this is the language of Paul, how your words and your actions must be married together. What you do is more important even than what you believe and what you say. Actions speak very Loudly. This morning we will focus on Paul's message to the church where he first reminds them, like, reminds them of who they were before Christ. Like, don't you remember who you were and how you lived your life for the whole sole purpose of creating humility and leading them to not see themselves as being superior? Then he comes in, the second part we're going to see here in these verses, and reminds them of the work that Jesus did in their life. The work that they did, that Jesus did to save them, the works that they did not do, not their own righteous actions, but the reactions and the actions of Jesus. One, to show how loved they are, and then two, to empower them to take what they've received and give it away. And then the third part is going to be with the whole message again of what Paul's been trying to get at in Titus is, hey, you have to give yourself to good works. That's just the nature. Like true faith in Jesus is always going to be married to good works. And we want to be a people who are giving ourselves to that. So with that, let's start with verse three. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Listen, remember, Paul has just finished describing what a good citizen looks like in verses 1 and 2, right? The idea that their life is literally an expression of the gospel as they live. And here in this verse, Paul is bringing them back to a place of humility, a place of humility, He is reminding them of who they used to be, those who are no different than the not yet Christians they live around every day. Here's the danger for the Cretan church, and to be honest with you, it's the danger for all of us today that we live our lives feeling that we are more enlightened because of our knowledge of Jesus. We live feeling that we're better than because of a sense of morality, and that superiority then breeds arrogance. And I don't know if you know this or not, but superiority, which breeds arrogance, actually repels people and keeps them from the gospel. And so Paul's coming into this moment saying, guys, you've got, to take, you've got to take time to remember who you are and really who you were, where you came from, and the realization then that you're no better than anyone you live around. You just have been saved by Jesus, and it's nothing that you did. He's trying to crush superiority, and he's trying to produce a sense of humility. 
Humility is the trait, the primary trait that def- that draws people in. It's what drew people to Jesus. Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, actually makes the argument that, that it's not love that's the primary characteristic of Jesus, but it's actually humility. Because humility is the thing that causes a person to die to self in the first place, which then gives rise to love. Humility is the defining characteristic, the primary trait that draws people to Jesus. One person I was reading said, good Christians should not, said, Christian goodness should not make us feel better than, but instead just grateful for. George Whitfield once said, and this is on the screen, when he saw a criminal on the way to be hanged, said, There, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. When Randall and I lived in Omaha, Nebraska, there was a season where we were struggling mightily financially. And some of our friends heard about this and came along and began to help us. And I'll never forget one day we were, uh, we were there. Someone knocks on the door. We open the door. Some of our good friends, the Inklands, and, and they come and they have a box full of stuff. There's a box full of stuff. And they come in. They, they just kind of walk straight to our kitchen. They pull out a crock pot. They pull out a bunch of food. And they just start handing it to us and say, hey, we just recognize and heard you've been struggling. We want to give this to you. And we're sitting there like we're, we're a little bit embarrassed, if I'm completely honest. We're definitely humbled in the moment. But we felt unbelievably loved because here's the point. We knew their story. The food that they brought to us actually was bought with the food stamps that they were using in that season of life. They just, and I looked and says, listen, you're struggling yourself. And they said, yeah, but we're having a better week than you. <laughs> One of the things I've begun to realize is, I've, you know, watching that moment, I've always found that the most generous people in the world are usually those who've walked in the shoes of those who are struggling. They're able to identify They recognize, they remember what it was like when they were struggling for someone to be generous. They remembered in their struggling and their disconnect and the hardships that they were facing when someone reached out to them and loved them and what it meant. They remember, and in that remembrance, it causes superiority and say, you know what? I remember when I lived my life separated from God, lacking morality and completely distant and angry and living with envy and malice. I remember I am no better than you because I walked in your shoes. I just was loved by someone actually who loves you. He saved me and he can save you. That's the power of remembrance. It's reminding yourself who you used to be. And Paul is doing that saying, if you'll just remember, you will embrace humility because in actuality, you were no better than anyone else around you. Which then leads to verses 4 through 7. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become <coughs> heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In verse 3, Paul reminds the Christians in Crete who they were and who they used to be apart from Jesus. 
But here in these verses, he is reminding them of the power and the love of God that reached into their brokenness and saved them and drew them to himself. The intent of the reminder is always to humble, but it's also to empower. Remembering the love of Jesus and now who you are in relationship with him, it's powerful. First, look at the reminder we see in verses 4 through 7. I'm not going to break all of these down and go kind of verse by verse, but I'm just going to literally look at them because that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, this one reminds you of what is true. Remember, remember you were in sin. You were in sin in verse four. So we can go, here's the list of things. You can go ahead and come down to the list of things. First, the loving kindness of God was the cause for Jesus coming. He's saying it was the love of Jesus that motivated him. Don't forget the love of Jesus. It's overwhelming. It's powerful. It's huge. Two, he saved us by his mercy, not because of our works. Mercy is we receive something we don't deserve, right? He saved us by his mercy, not because of his, our works. He washed us, regenerated us, and renewed us by his power, by the power of God's spirit. And now, Point four, God's spirit has been richly poured out on you through Jesus, which means you're lacking nothing. There's nothing incomplete. Verse five, so that, excuse me, point five, so we have been justified by grace. Justification's a big word. We're going to look at it here in a second. But it's just as if I died, as if I am now been claimed as being innocent, even though there's guilt in my life. And the sixth thing, we have become heirs to the hope. Of eternal life. Our lives are now defined by hope that we will now live in, we will live with Jesus for eternity. Paul is once again reminding them that everything good in their lives is a byproduct of God's love poured out. Things that they have not earned. The idea one, remind them of the gift poured out to them and how beautiful and powerful. Have you ever sat back sometime and just thought about how blessed you are? Like, and just think about your life and like you can, and again, you're not trying to think of yourself as better than, but like you see someone else's life and you're like, God, I, I don't know why. I'm just so thankful, Lord, for the blessing that you poured out and the way that you moved in my life and the way that you saved me, God, from my brokenness and the way that you have called me and the way that you've given me a new identity. God, I just every single day want to be reminded of the power of your beauty and majesty that took me and saved me and loves me today. There's an identity in that that he wants to have awakened inside of us. And the second part of that is a reminder then that that this love and a grace is available to all who were far from God in Crete and in our lives. One of the dangers of celebrating, celebrating how blessed we are is that we then hoard that blessing and don't do anything with it. He's saying, don't forget you're blessed to be a blessing. That's the point. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Don't hoard it. Don't think of your time, your money. Listen, do not, do not think of your time, your money, your energy and resources that have been graced into your life that you don't deserve, that they're, he just gave them to you for you. They don't, they were given to you so that you could then, like the Inklings, take what you've been given and say, this person's in need. Let me give it away. 
That's the point. Before moving on, we'll look at verse 7 to the phrase that says, so that. The word, the phrase, so that in verse 7 speaks to the end, right? All these things happen so that. Right, the culmination of God's work in their lives. And the two words are powerful, justified. The idea of justification. Justification is a legal term. Noting the moment a person is declared innocent or a scripture says declared righteous in a legal situation, right? It's important to note in this verse that justification, this legal declaration by God of our innocence before him is not something that we do, right? He calls us innocent because of the work that he did. His blood poured out. You've all seen those things on TV. <laughs> Excuse me. I've been sick literally since last Friday. I'm just now starting to get over it. So in this moment, you've seen these places like on television where, and I, I prefer like true TV in the sense this is an actual moment where you see this defendant and he rises because the jury has come back with a verdict and his family or her family is sitting behind and they're just waiting with bated breath. Have you seen those moments? And all of a sudden the jury comes back and they say, have you come to a verdict? It's like, yes. And it says, we, we, the jury, find the defendant. And then there's that moment that seemingly lasts forever. And they say, innocent of all charges. What happens? That defendant melts into the chair usually and just starts weeping. The family in the background goes nuts. Right? And he's like, bang, 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 order in the court, order in the court, right? They don't really care. Right? Everything they thought, they, they literally thought they were about to lose their loved one. And now the loved one is declared innocent and free to go. My friends, that's the word justification. You were in a legal court before God. You were guilty. You were guilty because you had sin in your life. And all of a sudden you receive Jesus. And he goes, oh, the verdict is in on you. You are now innocent because of the blood of Jesus. And chains come off and you are now free to go. So that, all this, so that you can be justified. And not only justified, but then filled. Why? Because you're now heirs. You are now heirs of God, it says. Paul reminds them that they are heirs of God. Romans says you were heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But it says here, to the hope that they will live eternally with Jesus. Listen, eternity does not begin the moment you die. Eternity, an eternal relationship begins the moment that you give your life to Jesus. He enters into your life, makes you completely whole, completely new. And then all of the love and all of the joy and all of the peace and all of the patience and all of the kindness and all of the goodness and all of the self-control and faithfulness that belong to Jesus, he says, oh, these are the things that belong to you. These things are good. They are perfect. They are holy and they are right and they belong to you. Isn't it good? Yes. Eternity, my friend, doesn't begin over there. It begins right here. Isn't that beautiful and isn't that powerful? You are now so that all of the work of Jesus, so that you can be deemed justified and innocent and become heirs of everything that belongs to Jesus. Paul's like, Titus, you got to teach these things. It's life altering. 
because those things you then receive, right? Well, they're important, verse 8. Verse 8 says, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Most theologians believe the trustworthy saying that Paul is speaking to is the succinct picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that he just previously laid out in verses 4 through 7, that list of things that I went through. And a majority of scholars hold, this is, this is interesting just to know, that ver, most scholars hold that verses 4 through 7 there are actually a hymn or a written out stated doctrine or document that was passed out to the early church. That four through seven was just a succinct, written out hymn or stated doctrine that was shared by the entire church in that area. And so when it comes and talks about this statement, what he's talking about is the statement that was already present in the church that was a trustworthy saying that was considered, right, to be doctrine for them and the thing that they needed to hold on to, never forget, and to live by. The gospel was the center. But verse 8 then comes in and shifts back to the overarching theme of all of Titus, which says this, says, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. All you see Paul doing is coming and saying, here's the doctrine. Here's the two reminders, a reminder of who you used to be, a reminder of the work of Jesus, the reminder of you being justified and co-heirs with Christ today and remembering the work that he did for you because he loved you. But listen, now take all of these things and go and do good works. Doctrine must be married to good works. The practice of good works is the logical outcome of a true apprehension of the grace of God. He poured it out to you, and now he wants to pour it out through you. That's what we see as a pattern in all of Titus. He wants us to be, chapter 2, verse 7, a pattern, an example of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, he wants us to be zealous slash passionate for good works. 3.1, to be ready for every good work. 3.8, be careful to maintain good works. Same with chapter 3, verse 14, learn to maintain good works as a lifestyle that you're living. Notice this idea of action, of, of like of faith, of doctrine and works. It's like inhaling and exhaling. You have to have both. And that's the point that Titus is trying to make. It's not works that you're doing to save yourself and make Jesus love you. No, you've received, and as Jesus has given, you then give it away. Why? Because there are those who are still in need, and God wants us to do good works, to do good works, to give our lives away to those who are in need of what he's given us. Then not 9 through 11. This is really practical. Put it on the screen. You can go ahead and read. 
made foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, know that such a person is warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. The call here to right doctrine and right action in all of these verses and all of Titus is clear and obvious. There is no other way to look at the Christian life. But here Paul shifts to a concern that he has for all believers. The myriad of distractions they will face in life that will keep them from their calling and honestly to keep them from action and good works. See, in the culture of Crete, you had Greek philosophers who would spend countless hours on endless philosophical circular debates. The Jewish rabbis, they would spend their time building up these imaginary genealogies for all of the characters they didn't really know anything about in the Old Testament. The Jewish scribes spent endless hours discussing what could and could not be done on the Sabbath, what was clean and what was unclean. And so what they would find is all these holy huddles of people talking about spiritual things with other people who were all healthy, who were all Christians, who were all doing okay in life, while all the sick people who were out there and in need never had anyone reaching out to them and giving their life away to them. I'll be honest with you. We're a, there are a lot of holy huddles. There are a lot of holy huddles. One of the greatest dangers, we, we sent our kids to a Christian school. I tell you what, man, Christian schools are the most dangerous place for holy huddles. Churches are the most dangerous place for holy huddles. Let's just get around. Let's get our children around and protect them from the world. Let's protect ourselves and keep us from immorality. And let's get everybody in a holy huddle so that nothing can affect us from the outside. And let's just guard and protect ourselves. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be with you because there are sick people out here who are in need. And I'm going to leave you to go to them. Jesus said that it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It is the sick. So we sit in circles and we debate theology and we talk through things. We talk through politics. We talk through all of these things in our holy huddles. And there are people out here who were dying and going to hell. We see them as unclean and Jesus sees them as those who need the gospel. Who, who, and he looks and says, you were just like them. You were just like them. Paul was certain that the real task of the Christian lay in Christian action. That's not a, that's not a way to, I'm not to say there's not a place for discussion. Obviously there is. But if I, my life is marked primarily by discussion rather than action, then I'm living an unfruitful life. A.W. Tozer one time, a lot of you have heard of A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. He, was, he said when I was in seminary, he said we would get done with our classes. We'd come back to the dorm, and, we would have, and there would be this room where they were always in there endlessly debating theology, so often just focused on the Reformed theology versus Arminianism, and they would, everything would kind of buckle into that. And they would sit there for hours and hours and hours, and voices would get raised, and debates would occur, and I would 
look at them and think, what a waste of time. And I'd either go to my room to be with Jesus because it was life-giving, or I'd go and find someone in need and give my life away. Paul's coming saying, right, Paul's advice that the contentious and opinionated man in verse 10, these people should be avoided. Doesn't mean we like, it's like excommunicate, it's like just don't have anything to do with them. If they're not life-giving, then just don't make them your primary friends. Just super common sense is what he's getting at, right? True faith does not divide. Listen, if you're the person who's always complaining about somebody, you're probably absolutely in sin. If you spend most of your time talking about and complaining about or arguing about, then you're probably in sin. It's important to note here that Paul says these types of people are divisive. He is speaking specifically about people who form baseless opinions. They're unwilling to submit their thoughts and say they possibly could be wrong and have places to learn. They hold on to their thoughts, even at the risk of losing relationship with other believers. These could be their spiritual convictions they're holding, their theological convictions, or more likely in our day and age, our political convictions. These are people who were all, listen, these people were always looking for a fight, looking for a, they're always playing the devil's advocate, needing to bicker, seemingly never able to find unity with the person unless that person believes and thinks just like them. Those people are dangerous. Jesus was able to meet everyone and to listen and to understand and to engage. He may not agree with, but he was able to walk with them and be so humble that they felt drawn to him and then wanted to hear what he had to say. If people don't want to hear what you have to say, that should be a sign that maybe you're not walking in humility to learn so you can engage somebody in a relationship and you can express the fruit of everything that's been given to you. Verse 12 through 13, Paul gives some personal greetings. And then in verse 14, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. And for the love of God, do not be unfruitful. Do not be unfruitful. As we end our time this morning and we end Paul's time with Titus, man, I'm so thankful for the reminder that I am not a great human being in my own strength. Everything that I have that's good and of value comes from Jesus. And that reminds me that I am not better or superior to anyone else in my life. I am where I am because of the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus who saved me. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from myself? Thanks be to God, Jesus can, according to Paul. And then he says, remember it was the love of Jesus that justified you. It was the love of Jesus in the moment moving in power that caused you to be heirs and to possess everything that Jesus possesses. Now, take all of these things 
And be fruitful in doing good works. Don't be fruitful in causing division, talking negatively, sitting there and having your holy huddled discussions with a bunch of other hypocritical type people who don't do anything for anyone. But give your life away so that the, those who are far off from God would know him and be saved. That, my friends, is fruitful. That's the message of Paul to Titus, to give to the church in Crete, who were so broken as human beings, and so broken as a church, and he believed in them, and he fought for them and said, you're the reason the entire island of Crete one day will bow down and worship Jesus. He believed them in them in their brokenness as they began to hopefully live a life of fruitfulness. And that's the call of Jesus for us today. Let's pray. Father, this morning I, uh, I recognize... I recognize the message, God, I recognize your words there in 9 and 10, 8, 9 and 10. They're difficult words. You're looking at people in the church and saying, hey, you've got to live differently. And, Father, it requires a death to self. It requires an embrace of humility, not great, God's great. It requires us stepping into a place of seeing others' needs as being as great as our own, if not greater, as Jesus did. It requires a death then to self, to sacrifice so that others can live. We just confess, Lord, we are really bad at that. But I'm thankful for your grace. It says, I know you are, but I can empower you to be great where you're not great in your own strength. And I pray for that for each person here. I pray for fruitfulness. I pray for conviction. I pray for truth to break into lies. I pray, God, we're even right now they're trying to, they're internally defending self. I pray they just stop defending self because they don't ever have to defend themselves before you. They should, I just pray, God, you'd help them submit to you and say, Jesus, your will be done, not mine, as you then pour out your life and your Holy Spirit into them in fullness. Thank you, God. This is my sweatshirt covered up by my brace. It says, speak up, Lord, in this season. God, just speaking up and being advocates for those who are in need physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Help us to be advocates, Lord, for everyone that we meet in need. We love you, Jesus.